everything comes with observation. Like you have to be a really keen observation. You don't like what our Singaporean parents tell us. Open your eyes, big, big. Hey there, I'm Jeffrey, and welcome to the Untrodden Path, a podcast where we meander through the twists and turns of life. In each episode, one crossroad at a time. We met in BMT. That's for my, or for our listeners who don't know what BMT is, that's basic military training, which is mandatory military training in Singapore. Yes. In twenty o seven. Yes, I believe so. Yeah, and I think it's quite crazy to think is that it's been so many years. It has been like almost an entire decade, and I like to use this term. We were, we met, but real we were really familiar strangers. Like he would be in a different <laughs> unit. <laughs> I know, I know, and I would like so we would sort of know that each other existed, but we never actually struck up a proper conversation with each other before in BMT. Yeah, yeah, it was quite strange. So I know that we were both in the same building, um, we were both in the same company, um, but we we didn't interact with each other. We like what you mentioned. I like the term familiar stranger. I think you know how I look yeah. like. I know how you look like. Yeah, we sort of know. We sort of knew that each other existed, like from afar. Like I knew. Jeffrey uh, existed on the third floor, and he would always be in this company, uh, falling in in this company beside me during the morning, beside my company. But uh, and with like, so the, yeah, and I would hear his voice. Yeah, I would I would re- definitely recall that bit. But beyond that, we we never really interacted on any level beyond that. Yeah, yeah, it's quite strange. So I think that's why we both got posted to the. SAF military bands, uh, that's the Singapore Armed Forces military bands. And I think our first reaction to each other was, it's oh you. Oh my God. <laughs> yeah. Oh my God. It's that person from the third floor in my company who says, it's company. Oh no, I can't remember. Sadia. And I was like, oh, that's him. Yes. Yes. Yeah. It was kind of strange because um, I was appointed to be the thermometer IC or temperature IC in the beginning. Um, I was actually quite happy because I didn't have to be toilet IC because that was just a really miserable role. But my role then wasn't that exciting because I had to check if everyone or if anyone had a fever, you know, I had to, uh, you know, check whether people were just generally fit based on the temperature. Yeah. And then there was this period of time where I got appointed to be the platoon in charge. And it was just such a ridiculous, ridiculously long period. I was just like, quite, I'm going to do this one, two weeks, and then I can just, you know, not bother about responsibilities. So I don't know what that officer had in mind. But yeah, that was kind of strange. Yeah, because it was it was ironic because I really remember my, my biggest memory of Jeffrey in BMT was him uh, issuing uh, much commands in front of his platoon, and it was it was probably that's what Jeffrey said due to some uh, decision on his officer side to make him the platoon in charge for an extended period of time. And, and I don't know, unfortunately or fortunately, that just etched in my mind as my only memory of Jeffrey in BMT. <laughs> so there were actually four people I've met from BMT whom I'm still staying in touch with, and you're one of them. So it's kind of crazy to think that 
to think about it like that because I definitely didn't go into NS thinking, let alone in basic military training, which for all of us, or at least you know, for, for you and me and for these people who I'm in touch with, um, it was 10 weeks. So it was an, a pretty intense basic yeah. military training. And I did not think I would gain any friendships from this period in time. So it's kind of nice that we're still in touch. Yeah, exactly. I mean, like you said, the duration is so short. I I had zero expectations of making any pro- any proper friends then. And when we think about other like the entire whole setup of BMT, everyone's so exhausted of the mm. exercises, uh, having to comply with all the commands and directives from the from from in the military, like. Right, really, it's quite a miracle that we actually became real friends from BMT in that way. So we both ended up in the SAF military bands. And to our listeners out there, how would you describe the military bands? I would say that the military band is probably one of the most exciting uh, point in my life because that was that I don't know one and a half years was when I made real friends and Jeffrey was one of them definitely. Uh, I was able to indulge in something that I really liked, which was making music. And I would say that the military band is not as, um, how to put it, regimental as you would expect of uh, any other unit because people, I would say that people are just generally more respectful and tolerant in the SAF bands. I wouldn't say I had a specific memory that I was particularly fond of in a military band, but there was, but the military band gave me a lot of laughs. Like there were lots of moments where uh, both of us would just like collapse in laughter. Like, you know, when we had this um, fellow friend from the, S- from the SAF uh, who was so intrigued by this new iPhone or the gyroscopic function of the, sorry, not the iPhone, the iTouch. And she was messing around with it. And I remember me and Jeffrey, me and Jeffrey just bursting out in laughter when he was messing around with it. And there were other like equally hilarious characters in our, uh, in our, in our band. And they just brought so much laughter to, to my one and a half years over there. Yes, it was a good time, but it was also hard work. You know, I think people don't, get that uh, because they think we just play music in an air-conditioned room all day. Oh, yeah. Uh, but, you know, it's a lot of drills. It's a lot of marching. I mean, in a lot of uh, state parades, the military bands is a important component. So you have a lot of re- your rehearsals and, yeah. you know, it's hours of standing in the sun. Sometimes we did get a little bit of, uh, you know, nice treatment. We got to sit in on the on the stadium benches under the shade but it was still hard work (laughs) oh yeah it it was really hard work like people often forget that behind every parade is probably at least five to ten rehearsals yeah so what you have seen is probably that at least the 11th or 12th attempt that was put up already and as people often notice the band is the first one in the parade and the last one out and we often have to perform in front of very important people um, prime ministers, presidents, ministers, and we definitely have to make sure that everything we do really puts Singapore in the best possible spotlight, and that requires a lot of discipline and training. What do you What do you do with the military bands? Okay, so I I play the trombone. Uh, I was assigned the bass trombone 
position, but I often, I play the tenor as well. So, well, just to fill you listeners in, uh, I played in the National University of Singapore uh, Symphony Orchestra. So it's quite, the, the, mus- the musicality and the expectations are quite different from a military band. And one of the music that I really liked was, I mean, it's a bit cliche, yes, but it was William Tell Overture. I mean, it's, it, it's, it's a really fun piece to play for a trombonist. Mm. Yeah. Uh, another one that I really liked was Dance Macabre, which was really, really fun to play as well. Um, quite a few. I there, there were definitely a few pieces I really liked because um, the style of, the expectations and style, playing styles of a trombonist in an orchestra is very different. So in university, you mentioned that you played with the symphonic orchestra. So you also studied pharmacy. Yes, I did. And what's that like? Challenging. I mean, pharmacy school is intense. I mean, when I went into pharmacy school, my grades weren't half bad. But uh, you have to realize that in pharmacy school, pretty much everyone's brilliant or incredibly hardworking and it was quite a challenge having to balance both my CCA or I mean my 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 symphony orchestra activities and my studies and it was it was it was challenging because pharmacy was just something that I kind of picked on impulse actually oh okay I yeah. didn't know that it was yeah it was not something I had given much thought on choosing it was just okay so basically what happened was that i wanted to do life sciences because I, I like biology and things like that so i was on the drop down list of the list of courses that you could see you could apply for yes, so, yes. oh there's pharmacy let's try that and anyway and in i went and here i am <laughs> wow okay that's actually quite interesting because i had a very similar experience when it came to my university uh choice of studies as well uh-huh. i had an un, an idea that I wanted to do something related to political science. And this was in Germany. Um, At the university, I had to do an entrance test and they gave us a list of things which we had to prepare for. Uh, So I did the preparation. I went to the test. Some of the questions were okay to answer. But when I did the test, I realized, okay, you know, the focus of the university in political science is not going to be to my liking because I don't really care which minister was you know, in the Green Party movement at that point in time, I wanted to concentrate on something related to international relations. So I thought, okay, you know what, I'm not going to get in anyway. I I did pass the entrance exam to my surprise, but when the time came to actually choose, I just randomly chose something and that ended up being psychology. Oh, wow. So, uh, yeah, I, I can totally relate to this Let's try this. Exactly. Like you you kind of have this vague idea like, okay, I want to do something related to this. It's a bit nebulous, but like, okay, something related to this. And then you see something like, I won't say like there was like a, something that was probably a trivial distraction. You'd be like, ooh, what's that? Like kind of like how a crow or magpie would go after like a piece of jewelry. <laughs> like, oh, what's that? And you're like, just, and you just go, go after it. And, and something you realize that you're, Everything, every your entire life has been shaped by that spurious decision. Right, it's quite scary. Yeah, well, I mean, like pharmacy school was challenging, and I had some difficult time uh, completing my degree. But on hindsight, when I came out, I graduated, I passed my legal exam, and all that, 
when I was a full-fledged practicing pharmacist in Singapore, uh, I didn't regret it as much as I thought I would. It was still something that I en- I enjoyed doing, and yeah, it was it was it was fine. So I know and remember that in university you were also part of a program called the University Scholars Program. Yes, I was. And I don't know if you remember this wonderful essay which you wrote, and I remember it was about gossip and the science oh. behind gossip. Oh. <laughs> Oh god, that was such a lot. That's such a that was such an ancient piece of work. Because <laughs> I remember you read a book on it and you were uh-huh. so inspired. And I remember that you had to write an essay as part of the USB application. Yes, I did. So for to enter USB, uh, the University Scholars Program at NUS, which is basically modeled after a sort of a liberal arts program in the US. So what you do is that you take um, a smattering of modules ranging from the sciences and the arts, but basically the one thing you define theme in all of them is that they want to promote critical thinking. Um, so the entrance exam to enter this uh, USP was I didn't write an essay of I think pretty much any topic. Is it? I think it was something like write some write, write an essay or something that interests you, so on and so forth, and an interview as well. So the essay I chose to wrote was uh, was titled The Unheard Side of Gossip. Oh, wow, okay. Yeah, so uh, basically like gossip was something that people tend to think of as something really negative, that um, it's just pointless banter, and it's something that is very divisive and causes rifts in, uh, unnecessary rifts in society. But I argued that, you know, uh, it was something that was for the that helped to forge bonds. That something it was a means of communication and a means of uh, forging a, a a network of people from which you can form an alliance with and other sort of other positive uh, perspectives of gossip. So how did this being involved in USP and studying pharmacy shape you as? a student and perhaps a person? I would say that they shaped me quite differently. So what pharmacy school did was that it made me realise that I could do um, things that I didn't think I was possible, like you know, study, like in terms of uh, the physical aspect of things, for example, studying till really late and cramming information into the last minute because really, I mean, often pharmacy school is about brute, brute hard memory work. Uh, USP, on the other hand, developed me to really, really think critically and observe very acutely, like be a very acute observer and make very critical deductions about things. And USP sort of built on that. Like it gave me, I wouldn't say it gave me new skills, but it helped me to develop aspects of me that I felt uh, would not have been developed if I did not enter USP. So you finished your degree, you went to work as a pharmacist after that? Predictably, yes. And then you went to pursue this very interesting master's course. Tell me about it. Oh my god. Okay, so I was working as a pharmacist for about uh, three years. And it was fine. Like it was, it, was, it was great. I had a great boss. Everything was good. Uh, there was a certain amount of patient interaction and things like that and working with a good healthcare team. But 
I decided that I wanted to do something a bit different. And I had some really good friends who picked me on this. That one of them, I think his present uh, was James. He's someone I, I knew who came to the who's from the US and a really close friend of mine. Um, he's, uh, he's a plant breeder. And he was he was one of the pers- one of the persons who helped to cultivate a greater love of plants for in me. I mean, I've always loved plants since young. I grew I I grew like little like orchids and like little herbs and stuff at home. Just to sort of mess around with them for a while. But what James did was he he really brought me to another level, and to see plants <clears throat> to really make he basically helped me to mesh my critical and observation skills in USB and apply them to plants. Wow, okay. How did that happen? I don't know. It was true because he was, he's a really quite an intellectual person. Like we will have really deep conversations, not just about plants, but about things in about things in life and things like that. And because he would be a plant breeder, he would say that, oh, if you breed this tomato with this and what, what, what would you get? And I would say, oh, maybe because if you maybe you'll get this result because of this, this, this factors. And it was true such conversations that I was able to apply those USB-related skills in plants. And when he saw that I was actually able to do this quite successfully, he said, hey, you know, um, some places are offering this, this like postgraduate degrees in like plant studies and things like that. I mean, like you could, you could try and do one. And if you do really well, I mean, why not do a, do a PhD and get, go into academia? I'm, I'm pretty sure you can do a good job out of it. So that really inspired me, and that's why I decided to uh, leave my job as a pharmacist and do a one-year master's in plant taxonomy. What does that mean? It basically means putting plants into cute little jars and putting labels on them. Basically, you need to basically scientists have this like, pernicious need to constantly put order in chaos, which mm-hmm. order is kind of like slightly artificial. Order is self-constructed in some ways. And what and what plant taxonomy does is that basically in this whole mess of plants of like apple, oranges, pineapples, whatever, people scientists want to put them in convenient little boxes with names, and so that's what plant taxonomy does. And there's two there's a few methods of you can go about doing that. You know, like physical characteristics, leaf color, uh, genetics, molecular genetics, or uh, chemi- chem- chemicals as well. What sort of chemicals they have? And you went to Scotland to do that? Yes, I went to the University of Edinburgh to do my degree. Sounds very exciting. It was very cold <laughs> and wet. Uh, well, I mean, one of, one, of the, one of the memories I have of Edinburgh is that it would never fail to rain less than two days a week. Oh, I, I can totally get that. I lived in Malmö in Sweden uh-huh. for a year. I would think that Edinburgh is perhaps, given the similar weather, um, less challenging than living in Malmö. Yes, I mean like, rain, I mean rain is. People complain about the rain in Singapore, like oh it rains so much, it's so humid. But when you have rain with cold weather, like ten degrees and like five degrees, it's really disgusting. And yeah, so I was in Edinburgh for a year and. Uh, I made some great friends. Uh, most of our classes were conducted at the Edinburgh Botanic Gardens. Wow. Uh, the courses were taught by research staff at the Botanic Gardens. My cohort size was uh, was about 15. 
there were students from all over the world. I mean, of course, there were a few Scottish students and English students, but there were also students from China, from Hong Kong, there were students from South Africa. There were also students from the US as well. It was quite exciting. It was a very good eclectic mix of uh, people in my class. Sounds like a fantastic experience. It was. It was probably, um, I mean, my master's was, I thought my time in SEI bands was the best time in my life until I did my master's. And my master's kind of overturned that and became the best one year of my life. Wow. So you mentioned that you've always been interested in plants. Uh, do you remember when you actually started getting interested in plants? Well, when I was young, I was always messing around with plants. I mean, uh, my late grandfather was a big plant lover. He, he died before I was born. Uh, he would have like potted orchids and things like that at home. And my grandmother wasn't exactly a plant person, so she would just leave them to neglect. But orchids being generally quite tough plants, they kind of get by. So when I was a little kid, I would often like mess around the garden, like pot, pot around the orchids and things like that, and ask my grandma like also a weird question, like why is this orchid white and things like that. And then she would give me like little orchid divisions to mess around with. And so I've been like messing around with them since like I was 10, I think. Oh, yeah. nice. Yeah, so I've been dabbling with them since I was like really young, but I only really took a serious interest in plants in general as well as orchids and in developing that interest consciously in a, in a in a specific direction that I want when around my university days. Mm. So I, I have something similar as well to share because I mm. got interested in plants after I did this thing called I am a young botanist. Botanist. Oh, I remember that. It's in primary school, right? <laughs> so back in the days, um, I think to foster some kind of interest in other things apart from what we're learning in school, we would have these activities where you'd have to do, you'd have to collect a certain number of points and then you'd get a badge. So you could be an, I think I got a badge and I'm a young astronomer, botanist, and I think it was something else. Oh, and yeah. I think the botanist one was really interesting because, you know, I had to collect seeds. I had to, uh, you know, like uh, do a bark shading or something like that. And it was one of the things where because of that experience, I actually did consider becoming a botanist oh, for wow. a long time. And it was one of those, oh, Jeff, what do you want to do when you grow up? And I, I, I had this conversation with my uncle. I still remember. So my uncle was a banker then. And, you know, I said to him, I want to be a botanist. And he was like, but you won't earn a lot of money. And then I got all freaked out. And I'm like, yeah, I don't know what I'll be doing with plants. So it just unfortunately ended there. Oh, dear. But I mean, often, I mean, our, par I mean, our parents and relatives, they, they have like, uh, they have like our best interests at heart. Like they would just advise uh, very directly on like certain other perspective of things. Yeah. So I know you love orchids. You talked about them already. So oh, yeah. could you tell me and our listeners more about what is it about orchids which you find interesting and what draws you to them? Well, they're they're deceptive little buggers, honestly. I mean they I mean almost unanimous most well, okay. So one thing you have to understand is that orchids on the on from a phylogenetic point of view, they are very, very um developed in that sense that they come from what we call uh, lilioid ancestors. So their ancestors, the ancestors of orchids uh, probably look quite similar to a lily. 
Mm, okay. And a lily is something what we call is radially symmetric. Basically, it has multiple lines of symmetry. Whereas an orchid is what we call is bilaterally sy symmetric, in which there is only one line of symmetry. Right. And a lot of flowers uh, that are bilaterally symmetrical are thought to be a more recent development because quite frequently bilateral symmetrical flowers are pollinated by winged insects mm -hmm. like bees and butterflies. And bees and butterflies obviously evolved much later in terms of the, uh, what do you call it? The, 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 in terms of life. So uh, orchids, they have these very later developments that make them more, I wouldn't say more, more advanced in a way. That's one, that's one perspective to put it, but not the most accurate. Uh, the other thing that I like about that is that they have developed many um, deceptive ways of going about their life. So for example, to germinate, they require a symbiotic fungus. Almost all of them require a symbiotic fungus and they just leech off the fungus. And uh, almost all orchids are pollinated by deceit, meaning that they offer no nectar or, po or pollen as a reward as compared to say sunflowers or like roses or things like that. Um, they also are able to colonize a very wide, uh, a wide variety of habitats. Uh, they are known as they're found globally everywhere to sub-Antarctic islands to all the way, almost all the way up North Arctic. They're, found mm. they're pretty much found everywhere. Um, they have a di very huge diversity of forms, both in terms of leaves and leaves and flowers. And they have, they are what we call, what botanists will call the more, one of the most, most species genus, a uh, family uh, in the plant kingdom because the size of the orchid family is only rivaled by one other family, the sunflower family. But sunflowers seem to be significantly bigger than orchids. Uh, no, not, not in terms of size, but in terms of the number of species. Oh, okay. All right. Right, right, yeah. right. Okay. So, I mean, it's always up to debate. Like, it's, it's, a, it's a bit like, oh, my, my orchid family is bigger. Oh, no, no, my sunflower family is bigger. <laughs> so the debate never really ends with the plant taxonomists, but um, these two families are pretty much the biggest. And if you consider that also the orchids are pretty much the second biggest flower industry, uh, flower industry in the world after poinsettia in Christmas. So what what about these things which you've described in orchids that make you so interested in them? I'm very interested in their pollination strategy because they have they've employed a wide variety of um, deceptive mechanisms for their uh, pollination. Uh, for example, we have uh, let me think, uh, slipper orchids that trick uh, surfeit flies to help pollinate them. There is this uh, orchid, uh, what is the name of it? Is it Angricum from Madagascar? Uh, it's called the Darwin's orchid mm. because uh, it has a, what we call a nectar spur that is about uh, one and a half foot long. Yes, Angricum sesquipedale. Sesquipedale means one and a half. So it has a, it has a nectar spur that is one and a half foot long. And Darwin predicted that there would be a moth or a butterfly with a tongue that is one and a half foot long to pollinate the flower. He died before the moth was found, but that moth was indeed found 40 years later. 
Wow. And it further cemented uh, the theory of evolution as a central tenet in biological sciences. So in that sense, um, an orchid actually played a pretty big part in developing evolutionary theory, I thought. So, you know, you're a botanist, you love plants. How do you actually develop green fingers? Everything comes with observation. Like, you have to be a really keen observation. You know, like what our Singaporean parents tell us, open your eyes big, big. Like, <laughs> literally, you have to be really observant of your plants, taking the detail, and that's only the first step. The second step you have to do is you need to internalize it and how are you going to use that set of information that you see in front of you. So, for example, I have a plant with yellow leaves. Okay, so what does that mean? So... And yellow leaves could be yellowing in different ways. Is it yellowing from the edge? Is it yellowing from the bottom? Is it yellowing from spots? Is it yellowing from the uh, underside of the leaf or from the upper side of the leaf? There's many, you can't just say, oh, my leaf turned yellow. Like it's, it's very ambiguous. So based on that, you need to do your own research. What sort of fungal infection will cause that? What sort of nutritional deficiency will cause that? What sort of bacterial infection will cause that? And then after, once you looked into that, okay, so, how, so you, you say you found the root cause of the problem. How do I resolve it? What sort of fungicide or bactericide, or should I do some some sort of excision on that on that on the infective part? Yeah. So basically, it consists of two parts that you need to be really cognizant about when growing plants. What about people who just like plants, maybe want to buy plants, and maybe want to use plants as accessories to um, brighten up their homes, figuratively speaking, of course. Um, mm enhance the mood and feeling the mood in their homes what will you say to these people who want to engage in yeah some interest in plants well the key word would be some interest it depends on how much of attention you want to allocate to your plant if your uh, allocation of attention to a plant is only strictly limited to that two minutes that they are watering the plant and that's about it, then I would recommend you get something that's really hardy and doesn't doesn't die when you breathe on it. Mm. Yeah. While if you are a really what we call a hardcore plant grower, then you would you can still grow the, the easy ones, but you would realize that uh there are when you are able to grow the more difficult ones, it opens up to a whole new world of plants that you can experiment on because there are many many plants that are not i wouldn't say they're easiest to grow but sometimes if you can really maintain their interest the diversity the diversity of form would really make the effort worthwhile what will you tell someone who says i don't have any green fingers i kill plants all the time i can't even look after succulents well I would say that I think green fingers is something that can be cultivated, no pun intended. <laughs> but it's something that can be trained and can be learned. I don't think it's something that... I know, I think often it's very discouraging. Like, you know, you buy a beautiful store-grown plant and then you bring it home and one week later, the leaves are falling off, the plant looks really ratty and then you get all sorts of pests and bug problems, the whole plant turns yellow and it collapses on you. So it's very demoralizing, but it's okay. Uh, every, every, everyone's journey to grow plants, we also kill plants. I have killed my fair share of plants as well. So there will be plants sacrificed on the learning curve, but don't be discouraged. Just 
be observant, read up on the internet. Google is an, one of the, is ironically, really an excellent resource on growing plants. And just try your best and don't be, yeah, don't let it affect you if your plants die too quickly. So as someone who has studied plant taxonomy, is it okay to have plants in the bedroom? Oh yeah, of course. I always like, why, why, would, why, why, why would they not be okay? So someone said to me, it's not okay to have plants in the bedroom because not only or when they're done photosynthesizing, they actually require oxygen to respire. And uh, okay. the, the implication is that you may suffocate in the bedroom with plants. My usual retort to that would be that how would people in the jungle live the next morning? That's a very good response. <laughs> I, I give exactly the same response every time. Um, okay, but what you said is right. Yes, um, plants are like, us human, uh, are like us human beings. They do consume oxygen as part of their respir- respiration processes. But uh, the amount of oxygen they use is really trivial. I would say that if you have a, a hamster in the same bedroom as the hamster, probably you use more oxygen than the plant. Mm. So uh, it would not in any measurable or significant way impact your life if you had a plant in your bedroom at all. So you really don't have to worry about that. So, you know, you talked about this very passionate interest in plants. So when do you know that something is passionate enough for you to pursue it further? So in this case, it's actually um, learning more about plants, being more committed to it, and even pursuing a postgraduate degree in something related to plants. When you feel you have hit a glass ceiling in terms of your knowledge acquisition by your own means, so, I mean, like I mentioned, Google is a pretty good resource for growing plants and learning about plants and stuff. And you realize that at some point, um, if I may say if I may say so in a not so flattering way, that you have kind of read almost everything that is available on the internet that is relevant and what you would consider to be accurate. And you're like, okay, I still want to know more. There's, there's not enough information about this specific plant that I want to know. Like, what fat, what classification is it? Has the, has, has someone done molecular work on this? How has someone done some pollination studies on this? And then you realize there's this knowledge gap, and you're like, oh, okay. If no one has done this, then I need to find it out myself. And that was one of the biggest reasons why I was like, okay, I, I want the pursuit of knowledge, basically, that really drove me to want to pursue this as a postgraduate study. Wow. I know, right? <laughs> Favourite plant, what is it? That's really difficult. I have a lot of favourite plants. Okay. Like, you know, like, like like what some people say, you're not supposed to have favourites as a parent, you know? <laughs> right? But, I, okay, I particularly like the genus of uh, slipper rockets because I think they have very fascinating flowers. And one of the first orchid that I bought with my own money is a slipper orchid called uh, Paphio pedalum spicerianum. Uh, it's an orchid that grows native to Bhutan, I believe, uh, Northern India, Bhutan. And of course, being your first orchid and being a complete amateur, I killed it like within mm. six months. Um, but uh, out of, I would say, nostalgia, Ease of care. It's actually one of the easiest slippers to grow in Singapore and fascinating flowers. And what I find to be rather 
some people find it rather drab green foliage but i like the i like the way the i, I just kind of like the green foliage the leaves just look very uh, how do i put it uh very calming to me when i look at them just considering the whole package um that might just might be what what my favorite plant is so for our listeners and for myself who are not as committed botanists as compared to you would you how would you describe this orchid visually um it has a pouch that looks like a slipper um the flowers when i describe it to you it doesn't sound very exciting it's in shades of green and white yes i know people are like green flowers how is that exciting but when you have but orchid flowers they do come in very bright cheerful shades of green kind of like a granny smith apple Mm, not like a very yeah a very lucid shade of green not a dull dusty plastic plant kind of green so green flowers i find green flowers slightly underrated but to me green flowers are really how do i put it they really epitomize less is more they are not like in bright lurid shades of orange yellow purple but it's green and white very a very simple palette color that doesn't draw unnecessary attention to itself beyond what it needs thank you very much it's been a very enlightening conversation. I don't think I've talked about this topic or I don't think I've talked about plants so much, but I think you're really like the only person I I know who has this amount of passion in plants. So if I have any plant questions, I do tend to go to you, but I think, I, 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 do, I actually do think I have green fingers, but I don't think I'm obviously as not as committed as you are when it comes to plants. I, well, like I said, I think everyone has green fingers and all it takes is just uh, a little bit of patience on yourself and a little bit patient, more patience on the plant and, you know, just, I don't know, just a little bit more time every day and you would realise that plants are really not that difficult to grow. Yeah. Alright, well, thank you very much once again. 